a series entitled Pain, Comfort, excuse me, Pain, Presence, Comfort, and Joy. And we begin with pain. We began with pain several weeks ago, and we end with joy. And I think it's very fitting. Psalm 30, verse 5 says that um, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, in the King James Version. Joy cometh in the morning. You may weep. You may warn, you may be sad, but there's joy that comes in the morning. God has this amazing way of turning your sadness into joy. And we might ask the question, how in the world is that possible? I, I think it's rather ironic that we end with joy, though we began with pain. And as I've shared kind of the journey of the last four months of my own life, which is really just kind of a minor issue compared to what many of you have faced. I haven't had a chance to say that, but, you know, having suffered what I have gone through in the last several weeks in surgery and then post, post-op pain that I have been feeling, it's just a minimal, kind of a minimal experience compared to some of the great level of pain and difficulty and hardship that you have endured. And I recognize that, and I think God is just using me and what I have gone through hopefully to speak to you and speak into what you have been going through to bring about from pain God's presence, his comfort, and his joy. I had a big week last week, and and all three of my kids and their spouses were in town, and uh, we celebrated my birthday a little early as well as um, my announcement that my uh, daughter and son-in-law are going to have their first child. And so... You know, it was really exciting weekend, and you know, and I preached twice, and and we had the revealing on Saturday, and found out that Brooke is going to have a, a little George, so King George is on his way, and uh, this is like George the fourth, uh, and uh, we're excited about that, and I'm also excited that the middle name is August, which is my grandfather's name. My my grandfather was August Frederick Windorf, and I'm a Theodore Frederick, so I have my grandfather's middle name and my grandson will have my grandfather who was just a remarkable man who was a teacher uh, and lived in Gardena with his family um, my grandmother and four children and raised them really out of poverty complete poverty in Gardena they were impoverished my dad didn't have shoes until junior high school and so the story of my grandfather's a remarkable story of a man who endured uh, much and uh, then in the summertime, he would, he would become a carpenter just to pay the bills. And family in Kansas would take um, the children and support them through the summer. And so my dad grew up on a farm in the summertime, but then would come back when my grandfather would get his teaching job back, but lived in poverty. But he was a man of great um, power, a, great, a man of great um, uh, endurance. He was a big man. And yet he was also a, a very tender man. And I think that's what we find here in the Beatitudes. Um, but I, I got a lot of pain as a result of this last weekend. and went out and preached. And by Sunday I was wiped out and had a major setback. And I think I felt like a, the bull in the ring, you know, the bullfighter. I felt like God was luring me back through my pain. A for, you know, bullfighting is like a, like a form of life and death ballet between the bull and the matador. And the matador calls the bull into submission and then death. 
But unlike the bullfighter, God is reminding me that when we endure, when we experience some hardship in our life, there is a great war, reward that, that lasts. There is a great reward at the end of it. There's a joy. And oftentimes we can rush past what we go through. And the event is over. And now we go, what, what, what is, we're back. We're restored. Everything's back. And so this last week was, was a reminder to stay with the Lord, to, to remind me that in my pain and in my recovery, uh, I don't want to forget the things that God has taught me. So he's pulled me back this last week. So we began a series, Pain, out of Mark chapter 4, if you remember going way back three weeks ago, in Mark chapter 4, we talked about Jesus telling the disciples, let's go to the other side. A storm hits them. And in the midst of it, Jesus calms the storm. And it says that they were terrified at the storm, but they were more terrified at the one who calmed the storm. And I said, sometimes what happens is that God will solve your problem. He'll solve your problem, but we'll become more terrified sometimes the way in which he solves the problem, because what God does is he's inviting himself into your life. And sometimes that's more fearful than what you go through, that God is going to change things up. He wants to be present. He wants to be Lord of the storms in your life. They went through the storm and it ended up with greater fear, not what was outside of the boat, what was inside of the boat. And then we looked at... Um, presence. We talked about Job, the life of Job, and he lost everything in his life in the Old Testament. We re recount the story of Job as a man who literally was laid flat. I mean, he was not only uh, lost his family, other than his wife, he lost his children and all that he owned, everything. He was impoverished. He was in rags, but he was physically stricken with boils and internal diseases, and he was just rotting to death, literally. And he realized that God's presence was the answer he was looking for. He wanted an answer from God. Why are you allowing me to go through this? And God shows up and he got his answer. It was God himself, the presence of God. Eleanor Stump, I, I, I quoted this several weeks ago, that Job's suffering got swallowed up in the maternal loving nature of God, displayed by his love and concern for his creation. God is a maternal loving God. The third thing that we learned is comfort. In Isaiah chapter 40 last week, we looked at this idea that God wants to bring comfort to the nation of Israel. God wants to bring comfort to your life. And the way in which he brings comfort, he's like a conquering king, willing to forgive all wrongs double-fold in your life, in your darkest hour. As I mentioned, l'amour de Dieu est folle, the foolishness of God. God's love is foolish. God's love is folly. It's ridiculous how much God loves us, but it requires us for waiting on him for new strength. And this morning, it's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to learn about this, where joy really lies in the Bible. Where do we find joy? How do we get joy? Happiness and joy are found, here's my premise, in the willingness to pursue a deeper, richer relationship with self, God, and others. And we find that here, hidden in the Beatitudes, and I want to look at those with you this morning. I was reading a fantastic little book by a Swiss theologian the last several weeks called The Pursuit of Happiness, and uh, he, he says that the voice of suffering 
is a strange voice. It silences all others and leaves us breathless and speechless. And he says, he says, the voice of God is much like the voice of suffering because it leads us into solitude. It quiets all other voices so that he might speak to us. And I think God wants to speak to us through the Beatitudes to bring us his joy, biblical joy. There's a lot of ways to define joy. The Bible defines joy as the joy of the Lord is our strength, that we find strength to live the Christian life by the joy of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 810. Psalm 30 verse 5 already mentioned that, that weeping lasts the night, but in the morning comes joy. There is a joy that God wants to instill upon you to restore your life with joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's what James chapter 1 verse 2 says. I think here's my definition of joy. Then we're going to look at how I devise this definition, but here it is. Joy focuses not on the external circumstances, but on the internal change through a humble process of deep introspection of all your relationships. A deep introspection. Your relationship with self, your relationship with God, and your relationship with others. And I want to show you that here in this passage. But first, let's look at the source of joy before we look at the process of joy. And we notice that the source of joy is three things. First of all, notice nine times, blessed, blessed, blessed. These are, you are blessed if this is true of you. Blessed, blessed, blessed. God, Jesus uses this word blessed. It's, it's, it's from the Latin we get the word beatitude. We call them the beatitudes because in Latin, beati or beatus literally means deeper inner joy the deeper inner joy of the person in the Greek makarios the word makarios is blessed and Jesus uses it over and over and over again makarios 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 you are makarios this is who you are it literally means not just simply fortunate but deep inner happiness God has placed a desire for happiness in our hearts, but it's not an easy happiness. Why are we blessed? Why do we have makarios? Why does God give us a deep inner happiness? The book I read the last few weeks by Pincross says this, the Beatitudes confront our shallow attempts at happiness. Our shallow, they, they confront us at our deepest level of wanting to live a shallow life with ourselves, with God, and with others. And so God wants to bring this blessed life into you, this, this fortunate, happy, deep inner joy. Now in ancient Greece, Makarios was only held for those that were gods, those that were dead, or those that were elite. You would either have to be a god to be blessed, or you would have had already had to die in order to find bliss. Or you were elite, you were wealthy, and you would find this joy. Jesus reverses that and says that you don't need to be a god, you don't need to be dead, and you don't need to be the elite. Here is what the blessed person looks like. I find that the source is God himself. Notice you don't make yourself blessed. Blessed is the one who is. 
Blessed is the one who is. It's God doing the blessing. God wants to bless your life. God wants to bring that blessing. He wants to bring that happiness, that that fortunate life, that inner happiness into who you are. The problem is oftentimes what we haven't done and what we're going to see in the Beatitudes is that we haven't humbled ourselves. It requires humility. There's an old rabbinic story that says, a rabbi said in the olden days there were men who saw the face of God. Why don't they see him anymore? Asked a young student. Because nowadays, no one stoops so low. See, in order to see the face of God, in order to receive the blessedness of God, it requires us to stoop low so that we might look up. And so what I want to do is look at the process of joy with you. And if you notice here, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are gentle, blessed are the hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who are pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and those that are those that might insult you, the ones that are insulted for following after Christ. Jesus lists a series, there are nine of them, of these beatitudes or these values, what what one German theologian called a transvaluation of values. Literally, it's upside down. It's a reorientation of a new set of values to live your life by. And when you do that, God will bring a blessing into your life like you've never had before. And I grouped them this way. Notice in this text here, the poor in spirit, the mourn, and those that are meek or gentle. All of those have to do with your relationship to yourself. They're all internal evaluation. It's about internally evaluating who you are. One who is poor in spirit, one who mourns, one who is meek. And then notice it moves to what I call the relationship with God, the attitudes. Hungering and thirst for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart. They're deeper, introspective. How am I related to God? Hopefully I'm hungering and thirsting for God in righteousness, that I'm finding myself more and more merciful and pure in heart. And then notice it ends with persecution and being insulted. The attitudes then turn outward and focus on your relationship with the world. That that when you are you are blessed when you are persecuted and insulted for the values and the life that you live in Christ. By the way in which you live, when people look at you and they criticize that, you are blessed, Jesus says. And so I just want to briefly this morning look at these categories. I mean, I want to give you a little insight into them um, because I think they're just invaluable to being kind of these markers of a new way of life for us as followers of Christ. And the way I see this process, it's like, Notice where it starts. It starts with poor in spirit and goes all the way down to being persecuted and insulted. It's, it's like an auger. You know, an auger goes deep into the soil. And it's like God, what Jesus is wanting to do is dig deeper and deeper and deeper into your life. And he wants to go deeper and deeper and change the way in which you see yourself, God, and others. And change those relationships. And the auger goes deep into your life. And it, you're getting into ever more real relationships. You see, it's one thing to come clean with yourself and say, I'm poor in spirit. I, I'm, I'm mourning for, my, for, for who I am as a person. 
I, I've become more meek. It's another, to be honest, with your relationship with God, to begin begin being hunger, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And then it's far more, far more deeper to be willing to be persecuted for the faith that you have. And Jesus understood that. And so he's driving the auger and helping us understand. Pinkerow says that Christ does not promise us easy happiness without a struggle, nor that his kingdom is a kind of eternal retreat house. As we shall see, the Beatitudes confront us with all of life's trials and overturn many of our ideas about happiness. They guarantee a path of life, whenever may be the hardships we endure, leads to the very bliss of God himself. The bliss of God himself. They, they bring us the answer to the greatest question which all people seek, which is where does true happiness lie? They drive us deeper and deeper into our relationships, more authentic relationships. So let's look at them. Let's look at the first set of three. The, the idea of being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is not, it's not physical poverty, yet Jesus, I think, associates the concept, the mindset of a person who is physically poor with the idea of being spiritually poor. That somehow the idea that when you are poor, you are utterly, utterly dependent on others. Utterly dependent on anyone that might help you get out of your poverty. It's, it's this sense of utter dependence that you have nothing in your own name. You are bankrupt. And yet I think what Jesus is doing is says that's the beginning of the Christian life. You begin with bankruptcy. You begin with the mindset that I am in utter dependence of God. I am bankrupt without God. It's not a false humility. It's a true humility. See, it's, it's not a spirit of poverty. You know what a spirit of poverty is? It's walking around, oh, low am I. Oh, I'm so low. I am so worthless. And, and you, you have this the sense that I have nothing. I am nothing. And you kind of walk around defeated. It's a defeatist attitude. It's the spirit of poverty. This is poor in spirit. This is a mindset that I am utterly bankrupt without God, which makes me dependent on Him for my being, for my life, for everything that I have. Jesus is saying that's where it starts. It starts with this desire. John Calvin says He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor. It reminds me, this is what Jesus came to do, is to restore our poverty, to make it rich. But it begins with an understanding of how impoverished we are without God. I mean, this is where it begins. Happiness begins with poverty. Isaiah 53, 3-5, He was despised and rejected by mankind, Man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and he held him low in esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. See, Christ takes our poverty. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Healing comes out of poverty. But Jesus does that work. 
it begins there and then it moves to a sense of mourning the idea of mourn is a grief over one's true condition my con- true condition apart from god psalm 51 david cries out clean me god i restore me O god my sin is before me he mourns it's one thing to know your condition it's another thing to go so deep that you are mourning you are grieving you are desiring christ in your life second corinthians chapter 7 there is a sorrow that leads to repentance a deep sorrow not as the world's is sorrow for its sins but as one who is deeply in touch with it and desires god it's identifying in my own life with what is causing my own pain i and and i and i and i leave my and i'm, I'm left feeling mournful a sense of mourning understanding that i'm being drawn back into a life of happiness that doesn't come from god that draws me back into the beatitudes and then finally meek notice that now it leads to a third level which is meekness which is it's a gentleness it's a true evaluation of self it's power under control one anglican exegete says this is the most embarrassing beatitude because how can one have what God has for us and to be on top of the world and yet to see yourself so low to be so meek and yet what Jesus says is it's power under control Nietzsche said that it's Christianity at its most demeaning level to be meek it's demeaning to human beings to be meek and yet what we find is that Jesus himself was this meek human being that he was led to the slaughter he did not react he did not respond when insulted he never responded to the insults and the degradation and and all that came his way he was silent and in his silence one commentator says is the greatest of strength i remember working for a pastor many years ago and came in conflict with him and i was just young and brash and inexperienced and and it really was my fault because I showed up he asked me to do something and I showed up and did it and I said where were you 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 didn't have my back and I kind of was upset with him over it and he stood up out of his chair and looked at me and says no one powers over me and I knew in that moment I knew in that moment there was going to be a judgment I knew I had stepped over the line and I was wrong my response was wrong there was no humility there was no meekness in my life but i also saw in him a lack of meekness as he stood up to raise his voice and to speak into my life with a power and a judgment that i thought didn't demonstrate this attitude of meekness see i think it's it's so easy for us to rise up against if we are being insulted to rise up with a power over someone else and yet meekness is this internal strength of knowing that God is at work bringing about full repentance bringing about forgiveness in my life and it's this knowing who I am John 13 knowing Jesus that says knowing where he was going he picked up he picked up the towel and began wiping and washing the disciples feet knowing who he was and knowing where he was going gave him the internal strength to be able to go low get on his knees and serve his disciples 
that's meekness. Begins there. But notice it moves towards our relationship with God. And we, it says, are these peacemakers. He calls us peacemakers. He calls us those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those that are pure in heart. And, and I want to look at those just briefly uh, with you as well. Because I think that the idea here, um, the idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Think of that. Think of this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That, that there's a deep inner hunger in our lives for what is of God. What God wants to do in our lives. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that we have been justified by God through faith so that we might have peace with God. God is the one bringing justification. That is, He's restoring our souls. He's renewing us. He's bringing restoration into our lives. And the one who hungers for that is the one who understands that. And there's a deep hunger that results. That I desire more of this. I desire more of God. I'm, I'm wanting to hunger more and more. That my, my appetite is changing. That my appetite is no longer for the happiness of the world. But my hunger is to understand and to fully find myself within the full justification of God. Living out God's justification in my life. Justification is God making us right before Him through Christ's sacrifice. It's Jesus atoning for our sins. It's Him giving His righteousness and placing it in us. And it's now hungering to live that out in our lives. That's why I think Psalm 1 says the blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the way of the sinners, stand in the way of the scoffers, or sit in the, in the seat of, of, um, of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law we meditate day and night, and we'll become like the tree firmly rooted by the rivers of the water. And our tree will not wither, but it will produce fruit. It will, it will produce fruit of its right kind in the right season. See, the blessed one is the one who doesn't walk the way of the world, but he desires something far greater. He or she sits by the still waters and finds the Word of God hungering and thirsting for the law of the Lord. And in that law of the Lord, we find great delight. And then notice what Jesus does. He moves from hunger and thirsting for righteousness to the one who has a pure heart. Do you see that? It's pure, pure heart literally means a single-mindedness. See, out of the heart flow all the issues of life. God wants to transform not only your mind, but also your heart. God wants to get a hold of your heart because he knows you live life out of your heart. Your heart determines how the course of your life. It's the rudder. It's, it's Everything flows out of how your heart is doing. And the purity of the heart is this idea of a single-mindedness that we have in Christ. And I, I want to say that mercy, this, this idea of purity, it's not reformation, it's transformation. It's not just simply the change of your heart. It's the, it's the continued transformation of your heart that God is going after. The one who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in idols or swear by false gods, is the one that God blesses. Psalm 24, verse 4. 
You know, it's, it's, I don't know whether you've done this, but maybe you've prayed for a really good friend, or maybe you prayed for your kids to just come to Christ, or you, you want them so desperately to know God the way you know God, to enter into a relationship with Jesus, and, and they've wandered, or, or they're, they're just not ready. And then something happens. Some transformation happens, and there's a single-mindedness. See, they've, they've adopted this beatitude of pure in heart. And you look at their life, and it's different. There's a new pursuit. There's a new focus. There's a new desire. And it begins to change the course of their life. It begins to change the way they speak. It begins to change their actions, their behavior. Everything, their time, everything begins to change as a result of that. And then those that are peacemakers. I like this one. And and I included in this particular one because God brings about peace that we then offer others. But we find this peace. We know, there's, no, there's no turmoil in our hearts. We now have reached a place where there is great peace. It's not a superficial relationship. It's now a relationship where we have found peace with God. But I also find that it goes well with persecuted and being insulted. Because when you think about being peacemakers, think of your neighborhood. Think of the kind of person you are in your own neighborhood. I, I, I like to see myself as a peacemaker. And I, I don't want to make, I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers, but when I see something that really frustrates me in my, my neighborhood, I get, I get really upset. I get worked up. You know, I got to change the sprinkling system in my neighbor's property because all the water flows onto my property and what's my, my newspaper, or, you know, or, or the, the other neighbor that leaves out the old washing machine. And it's just sitting in the front yard. It's been there two weeks. Like, when are they going to move that thing? You know, do I go to war? Do I go to war? So how do I find that what Jesus is calling me to do is become a peacemaker, not just be tranquil. It's not just superficial. It's not just avoiding, but it's a sense of peace, of bringing peace, shalom, bringing a blessing over people. Not just being frustrated or avoiding frustration, but actually stepping into blessing other people. We heard the women got together and heard Catherine Wolf's story, Hope Heals, a woman that endured a stroke, it's actually two strokes, and almost died. And by an amazing miracle, she is still alive today, though she struggles physically. And she shared her story at the Malaga Cove Library. And there were many women there. And my wife, before, took one of her books by our neighbors. And this woman had suffered a stroke many years ago and dropped that book off with a little special note saying, you might be interested in the speaker this morning. I mean, extending a blessing to a woman that has endured hardship in her life. That's who we're called to be. And notice it ends with being willing to be persecuted and insulted for your faith. There's no greater test of faith than to be able to stand up to your faith and know that other people might actually judge you for it. And Jesus says, blessed are you. And notice how it ends. Note how this whole Sermon on the Mount ends. Here it is. It says, when all of this is true of you, when you pursue a deeper life in a changed relationship with yourself and with God and with others, notice what happens. Rejoice and be more rejoicing. Do you see that? He uses the word joy. It's in the same, what we call, semantic domain as the word makarios. The blessed one is a happy one. 
The blessed one is a happy one because they're filled with joy, a true joy. God puts a true joy in our hearts when we begin to live the Christian life based upon the values that Jesus has given us. And then it says, Jesus says, rejoice and rejoice some more. Be really glad. Be super happy for your reward is in heaven. That's great. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you, there is great joy. And sometimes our greatest amount of joy will not come until, until heaven. Sometimes we, for some of us, we will wait till heaven to experience that joy. But what I have found, one particular commentator says this, it is self-evident that in any persecution context, the reward spoken of must lie in the future. But notice this. He says this, and I think this is profound. That holds true here, but it is, it's a confidence about the future that can and should produce joy in the present in full contradiction of the present painful circumstances. You think of it. The joy that awaits the believer in eternity when united with Christ is so great. And yet what this commentator is saying is that that should impact and produce a kind of joy in this life no matter the pain. There is a great joy that awaits us. But the joy comes also in living as Christ has called us to live. That's the challenge. Are you happy? Are you really happy? Do you find happiness in Christ or somewhere else? Happiness lies in the deep inward pursuit of God and His values. It changes all of your relationships. May we be the kind of people that pursue these values on a daily basis, as a practice, as a lifestyle. Let's pray together. Father, as your word says, that joy, joy comes in the morning. And here it is this morning. And we desire that joy. And it's not as the world gives. It is not fleeting. It is not superficial. It is not wrapped up in some event or some possession. But it is found deeply embedded in the life that you have challenged us to live. And so, Father, as we pursue that life and go deeper and more honest and become more honest with ourselves, with you and others, live out more of a real, authentic life, I pray, Father, that that joy may be manifest in us this morning, that we might find that joy, might experience that joy, that it might be the very joy that, that gets us through that keeps us going, that wakes us up in the morning, that drives us. It's a reward that you give us, and we eagerly seek it. Now as we go to the table, many of us probably come, maybe not necessarily from a perspective of joy, but maybe sadness or hardship or discouragement. And I pray, Father, that the cross of Jesus, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that he bore our sins and our iniquity and our pain and our hardship 
to replace that with true joy. May we come this morning to the table and receive, receive the bread, and we receive this juice that symbolizes, that represents your very flesh and your blood spilled out, the one sacrificed for us. May we come. May we come and release what it is that we are holding on to and receive your joy. Amen. Thanks for being with us this morning.